Father, you are so amazing. It's amazing what you do for us each and every day, things that we don't even know about, but we praise you for it. We thank you for the ability to be here this morning to worship you. We ask that your Holy Spirit fill this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Last week, we kicked off a new sermon series on the last book of the Bible. In the Greek language, it's called the Apocalypse. Now today, that word apocalypse carries with it a vision of all kinds of cataclysmic events. But that's not what the, that's not what the word itself means. You see, apocalypse just means vision. Revelation, an unveiling or a disclosure, which is why in the English we refer to it as the book of Revelation. Written by the Apostle John, Revelation is just what the title suggests. It's a record of the revelation John experienced and saw and heard in his visions. And it's a different kind of book. The language is different. The, the feel is different. It's full of imagery and, and symbolism as John tries to describe what he saw and heard, things that he didn't even really understand. He's just trying to be faithful in recording it. And what we read in its pages can be interpreted in one of several ways. First, it, it's something can be something relevant to the immediate events of John's day. It can also be about future events that will unfold during John's generation. And finally, it can be about future events that surround the end of time. And sometimes, it's all three at the same time. And today is going to be a little something like that. See, we're going to be diving into today what, what is meant for specific groups of people for that day, but also throughout all time. It's a section of Revelation known as the seven letters to the seven churches. These letters were coming directly from Jesus himself. Letters that were sent to the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They contain one collective message for the church in all times and at all places. In other words, any church might be like one of these seven churches. And within any church... There can be people who are like the people of each of those churches. Which is why today we're actually going to deal with all seven in one week. I could spend seven weeks going through each of the individual churches, but we're going to cram them in together so you might want to get a little comfortable. This one might be a long one. So when we look at each of these messages, what we're dealing with is seven as a whole, and most of them follow a similar pattern. First, each one is addressed to the angel of that church. Who is that? Now, we can't be altogether sure. It could mean that it's being sent to an actual angel or a heavenly messenger who then carried that letter to, from Jesus to John. Or it could be a reference to John himself. After all, the word angel merely means messenger, who is in this case is acting, John is acting as a heavenly messenger. But most tend to think 
that it's using the term angel to speak to the spirit of each of the churches. Angel is being used as a literary device to personify the spirit of each church. And then second, each letter begins with an aspect of the visionary appearance of Jesus to John and what was recorded in that opening vision that we looked at last week. When the first of John's visions began, he was given a vision of Jesus, which he described this way. He said, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool, as, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. You see, each of these seven letters will begin with Jesus referring to some aspect of how he appeared to John. And it often had relevance to who he was writing to and what he had to say to them. Third, each of the letters then goes into something that Jesus wants them to know that they're doing right. But then fourth, almost every letter details where they're getting it wrong where they needed correction, rebuke, and in some cases, even judgment. But then Jesus promises them that if they will address these issues, that they will be rewarded. And then finally, each letter ends with a challenge to pay attention to what they have just heard. So since these letters are meant to be taken as written directly to us as much as it was to the church in the original of those original seven churches. Let's make sure that we go into these letters with three questions in mind. Number one, what would God recognize as going well in your life in regard to your relationship with him and with others? Number two, what criticisms or judgments Jesus brings through these letters, what do they reflect? Do they reflect something to be brought to bear in your life? And then finally, am I willing to own those mistakes, those critiques, those judgments, and am I willing to turn from them back to Jesus as he is asking us to? In other words, will I hear what he is saying to me? So as we go through them, try to be thinking to yourself, would this be a letter to me? And if so, what would it mean for my life? So with that in mind, let's jump into the first of the seven letters, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. It says this, write this to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have heard your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. 
you have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered with me without quitting. See, this letter begins, as we said, most tend to do with something praiseworthy. They are praised for their deeds, their hard work, their perseverance for doctrinal purity and the rejection of false teachers. They're praised for standing for truth against those who were against truth. They stood up against those who were wicked. They tested and revealed false teachers. They endured persecution at the hands of others for taking those stands. But then comes the warning. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the work you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the seven churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Now, if I were to characterize this church, and I want to try and do this for each of the seven churches, if I were to characterize this church with a, with a quick assessment of them, it would be something like this. Loyal, but loveless. See, legalism had come into this church, and it was what was guiding this church. They, they go to the book, but they go by the book, but they don't have it in their heart. They've lost their first love. And while that may include their love for God, the real emphasis here is on their love for others. It was good that they were taking all of those stands. But notice, they were having all kinds of issues dealing with their interaction with people who were outside of the church outside of their faith from that came the indictment you have lost your first love the love that once drove your interactions to with outsiders the love that made you want to reach out to them in love and to see them come to faith in jesus sure you've stayed pure but instead of your heart breaking that they're facing a Christless eternity. You've made them the enemy. You've made it us versus them, good guys versus bad guys. It's become a culture war for you, not a war for souls. Kind of sounds like current times. You've made it all about judgment and condemnation. You're doing a good job of hating sin but you're not loving the sinner very much. You have truth, but no grace. And the result? If you don't turn back from that, and if you don't turn back to your first love, what's the result? Jesus tells them that he will remove their lampstand. And whether that means he will actually cause that church to cease to exist, or simply that they will be removed from having an influence and an impact isn't clear. But in one way or another, their star would be cast from the hand of Christ, and he would no longer walk among them. 
So they needed to return to that first love. And after that, the first letter ends with these words and a promise. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. An amazing way to end that first letter. Which brings us to the second letter. And it begins like this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. See, those in Smyrna were under a unique and intense persecution for their faith because Smyrna had been closely aligned with, with, uh, with Rome and it was almost entirely turned over to emperor worship. This was the heart of the persecution of Christians who saw that Jesus alone was Lord because it caused them to be seen as political subversives and they're disloyal to Rome. Rome. But to this was a very large Jewish population. The Jews under Roman rule were granted an exception with regards to worshiping Caesar as Lord. Initially, the Christians were granted that exception as well, protected as they were seen as coming out of the Jewish people. But there were some within the Jewish community who forcefully separated themselves from Christians and even worked to have Rome persecute them. That explains what was meant by that term, the synagogue of Satan. It wasn't an anti-Semitic thing because after all, Jesus was born a Jew. But it was about those within Judaism that were persecuting the Christians. See, only two of, those seven, only two of the seven letters do not contain some form of a rebuke. And this is one of them. And in both cases, they were churches who have or were enduring hard persecution. But there is a challenge for this church in admonition. They run the risk of wallowing in their suffering, of adopting a woe-is-me mentality and an attitude. And so if their first letter was about being loyal but loveless, this one could be characterized as enduring but weakening. To a church in a city that was known for its extreme poverty, which was part of what they were having to endure, Jesus says to remember, you are rich. Count your blessings, because there is more to count in terms of blessings than there is to count in terms of your suffering. 
And you'll need to remember that because even greater persecution is coming. Jesus tells them that it won't last long. The mention of 10 days is not a reference to a literal 10 days, but a symbolic way in the Bible of saying that it will just be for a limited season. And notice how he began the letter, that he was the one who died and came back to life. See, there's nothing to fear, even in persecution that ends in death, because death is not the final word. So he says to them, stay strong and don't give up. Then comes the letter to the third church, the letter of Pergamum. And he says this, write this to the letter of the letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Jesus refers to this city as the devil's throne for a specific reason. You see, this area was deeply, deeply pagan and openly hostile to Christianity. It was the official center for worship of the emperor, which is why it's referenced to as the devil's throne. It's also the site of the first Christian martyr in the province of Asia, a man by the name of Antipas, who, according to tradition, was slowly roasted to death in a bronze kettle. Jesus began by praising this church for being loyal in a hostile environment. But then Jesus adds these words. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you who, whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. A little background here might help. People who aren't too familiar with the story of Balaam in the Old Testament, it was the archetype of the false prophet and the same kind of teaching that the Nicolaitans were putting forward. Balaam tried to teach the people that you could tell yourself that you were a follower of God in good standing while at the same time living in a way that went against what God said morally. And many in the church in Pergamum had taken the bait, not only in allowing that kind of mess to be taught within their churches, but by personally embracing it. Which is why to our list of things we think about, loyal but loveless, enduring and weakening, we can add devoted but compromising. They had not renounced their faith, but they had begun to compromise it through false teaching and immoral living. To them, Jesus says, repent. And the word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn around, to change course, to stop going in one direction and to start going in another. Here, the call to repent is particularly strong because it's followed 
by a warning. Jesus says, if you don't repent, then I will come to you and I will use my sword against all who are spreading this, meaning the sword of judgment. Then Jesus ends with these words that he's used before, but only with a little something more. He says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches, to everyone who is victorious. I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. We talked a little bit last week about sometimes in Revelation we get a little something weird and we got to try and figure out what it's talking about. We get a little bit of that here. What is this hidden manna? In the Old Testament, while they were wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel were given a bread-like substance from heaven. And it came down every day from God like dew on the ground. And they would gather it and in the morning and they'd use it for food. And God did that for 40 years. A sample of that manna was taken and put in the Ark of the Covenant, which resided in, in the temple in the most holy place. There's an old Jewish teaching that says that when the temple was destroyed, the prophet Jeremiah took a pot of that manna and he hid it. And when the Messiah came, it would reappear. See, the idea is that if we overcome, that we will receive some of that hidden manna from Jesus, our Messiah. And one day, we will be given every heavenly food, every heavenly blessing flowing freely from Christ. But what about this white stone with our name written on it, a new name written on it? See, in those days, people would use certain white stones like they would use an admission ticket. Something, sometimes there would be things even written on these stones, so when you would present a particular stone, it would get you into a place or an event or even a gathering. They were also used in ancient courtrooms. Jurors would be given two stones, a white one and a black one. A white stone would mean a vote for innocence. If they felt that the person was guilty, they would then vote with the black stone. Jesus is saying that we can receive a white stone with our name on it that will be like an admission ticket to heaven, representing the fact that all of our sins have been forgiven. Our slate wiped clean. Everything for which we are guilty of erased. And these stones will be given to those who overcome. Meaning those who come to Christ as their leader and their forgiver and they stay in a faithful relationship with him. But why is a name written on this stone, known only to the person who receives it. Why doesn't it just say Matt? Why is it different? You see, in the Bible, names meant more than they do today. A name expressed someone's essence. Knowing their name meant knowing a person's entire story. It meant knowing who they were their entire life. That's why the name that Jesus writes on that stone will be just between us and him. 
Because in that name will be everything we were and everything we will become. It will be our old name and our new name, everything it took for that new name to be written, our unique story between us and Jesus, all that was forgiven, all that he saved us from, what it cost him to write that name on the stone. We'll be the only ones to fully understand what that means. So if you want that stone, then ask yourself if how you are living is so out of sync with Christ that you may not be a part of the Christ life after all. Letter number four is actually the longest letter of the seven. And this is where it, what it says. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message of the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. See, this church has love for others down pat. Serving others at the point of need, down pat. Faith in God, down pat. They were getting better at it day after day. Social ministry, they're nailing it. Caring for the poor, the widow, the homeless, the hungry, the, the orphan. They had a heart for people. But what didn't they have down pat? Jesus tells us, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering." And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Who's Jezebel? Jezebel was an actual historic event, person from the time of the prophet Elijah who was known for being incredibly evil. Now her name here is being used to signify a prominent woman within the church. Her name probably wasn't Jezebel. We don't find too many Jezebels in current society anymore. Um, probably to signify a prominent woman who's, who undermined the loyalty to God by promoting tolerance towards certain pagan practices, specifically eating food that had been sacrificed to idols and engaging in sexual immorality. Thyatira was known as a center for trade guilds. Think of them like labor unions. They were so strong that you couldn't work unless you belonged to one of them. The trade guilds were very pagan in orientation. Membership involved attending the guild banquets where meat that had been sacrificed to idols would be eaten in celebration of that idol. This put the Christian in a difficult position 
If they did attend, then they were out of a job. If they did attend, then they would be compromising their faith. But Jezebel came along and said, don't worry about that. Eat away. It's okay. God understands. And many of them did, which led to greater compromise because those feasts were also tied to acts of sexual immorality, particularly with the temple prostitutes. In essence, Jezebel was teaching them that you could and should engage in an immoral lifestyle, that you could accept and tolerate immoral lifestyles in yourself and those around you, and that it was okay, because God understood you had to do it in order to have a job. That you could could just treat that differently from what it means to be a Christian. The church was giving that nonsense a platform. They were, in fact, affirming it. So we can characterize this church as serving, but tolerant, and not tolerant in a good way. They were the opposite of Ephesus, who had truth, but no love. This church had love for others, but no truth. Love and acceptance turned into affirmation, and sinfulness. They said, I'll give food to the hungry, I'll help house the homeless, and then we'll worship false gods and sleep with prostitutes, and and it's okay. See, the heart of the condemnation is that this was tolerated without being confronted by the church itself. It was as if nobody wanted to seem intolerant or judgmental about what appeared to be a personal lifestyle choice. Jesus says that they should never let that spirit, much less that teaching, exist within the church. But then comes the promise. Jesus says, But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father. And I also gave them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. See, what Jesus is saying here is that when we persevere, he will be a part, we will be a part of his final victory. One day, we will reign with him in glory and be with him forever. Jesus makes it clear that there is both grace and truth. It's a balance between the two. And then the fifth letter. Jesus says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message of the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. See, Sardis, Sardis was a city that had some characteristics that are kind of interesting. It was a city that had been rich and prosperous, but now wasn't. It was a city that thought that it was indestructible, 
because of its setting on high on a mountain. But even though they had that setting, it had been taken by surprise invasion not once, but twice. It was also a town known for its colored wool, cloth that was dyed in many colors and then sold throughout the region. And they claimed to be the best at wool dyeing in the entire world. Well, let's keep reading. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Devastating criticism, critique. But yet, what you have here is no condemnation. All the other churches had a, co a, a commendation. This one didn't. Nothing good to say about this church. Jesus is telling them, you're dying, and you don't even know it. Parts of you are, in fact, already dead. If you don't wake up to the reality of your life, you're just going to die. I will come and take away what little life you have left. See, most people who are dying spiritually, they don't even know it. It's a small, slow, gradual decline a little compromise here, a little compromise there, and the next thing you know, you're gone. The way most people die spiritually is like a slow withering of starvation or dehydration. The descriptor for this church would be walking but dead. People who are in that state must wake up. They need to be jolted into attention and see the true state of their being. And they, then they need to take what remains and to fan it back into a flame. Not yet. I faked you guys out. Or else the fire will be go out altogether. The people in Sardis knew that twice in their history, they had experienced a sneak invasion when they least expected it. Jesus uses imagery to, that reminds them of that and says... It can happen again, only this time with me. Then there's another image that Jesus wants to bring up to them, not in relation to their history of surprise invasions, but of the reputation of dying wool. Jesus writes this. He says, Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So here's the question. Is the way you, are, you are walking, is it leading into a spiritual grave? or into the book of life. The sixth letter to the churches. 
says this write this to the letter of the to let write this letter to the angel of the church in philadelphia this is the message from the one who is holy and true the one who has the key of david what he opens no one can close and what he closes no one can open I know all the things you do. I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere. I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. And they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now you probably noticed what sets this letter apart. Jesus has nothing but praise for this church. There's no condemnation here. They were weak, but they were weak because they were, had been persecuted. And they knew that they were weak, which made them rely on God's strength. And as a result, they remained faithful. They had been tested and found true and would be protected from having to be tested again. As with Smyrna, the believers in Philadelphia were having a conflict with their local synagogue. Jewish Christians had been expelled for accepting Jesus as their Messiah. But Jesus is the only one who can open or close the door to the new Jerusalem. And here he assures them that it will be open. So let's label this church weak but faithful. Which brings us to the last of the seven letters. The letter to the church in Laodicea. Let me tell you first a little bit about the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was wealthy, so wealthy that when they were hit by an earthquake, they refused all government aid to help rebuild. Imagine that today. We just had a, a, a hurricane come through. Could you imagine the state of Florida saying, eh, we're good. We don't need your money. That's what Laodicea did. Because they had more than enough wealth to rebuild on their own. Second, they were known for producing the finest clothes in all the world. It was the, that city was the center of the fashion industry of that day. Third, they were known for their medical school, specifically the invention of an ointment that helped clear up vision issues. And then finally, despite all that they did have, they were also known for not having their own water supply. It had to come through them, come to them through a series of viaducts and pipeways at least for a distance of six miles. And then it came from a series of hot springs, which meant by the time it got to them, it was often lukewarm 
And unless, unless it was treated, it was disgusting to drink. So disgusting that it would make you wretch to drink it. I don't know if any of you are like me. I cannot stand lukewarm water. It makes me want to wretch. In fact, this week, our, our refrigerator died this week, and I got a water bottle out of the refrigerator before I realized it was dead and took a drink of it and almost spit it out. It was disgusting. See, I don't, I don't like warm water. If it had been hot, if the water they got had been hot, it could be used for bathing. If it had come to them cold, it would have been useful for drinking. But lukewarm water is good for nothing. So they were rich. They were known for their clothing. They were known for their eye treatments. They were known for their nauseatingly lukewarm water. With all of that in mind, listen to what Jesus has to say to them. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness an ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see i correct and discipline everyone i love so be diligent and turn from your indifference the indictment from jesus here is that you're neither hot nor cold you're not on fire but you're not dead you're not a passionate world-changing believer nor are you an atheist. You're just kind of that in the middle, safe, warm, comfortable. Does that describe churches in our day? Comfortable? We need to be uncomfortable. In order to reach those far from Jesus, we have to get out of our comfort zones. It made Jesus want to vomit which is what the word spit literally means in the original Greek language, the people who heard this knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. It was a phrase used among themselves about their water supply. Jesus is saying, that's how you make me feel when I look at you. They thought they had it all. They thought they had everything they needed, wealth and health and clothing, but Jesus tells them, you're poor, you're naked and you're blind and you don't even know it because all you see is worldly wealth worldly clothing worldly vision which means that you have nothing and when it comes to spiritual things you're so lukewarm that even that is meaningless in fact less than mean meaningless it's it's nauseating 
The wealth you think you have, the clothes you think you're wearing, the eyes by which you think you see, it's not here. None of it is real. None of it will last. You have yet to acquire true wealth. The gold that I can bring, the clothing that I can give you to wear, the blindness that I can lift from your eyes. So we identify this church with this mindset, comfortable but wretched. Which is why after saying this, this is how he ends this letter. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. That's a fitting way to end the seven letters. See, the goal of Jesus is not to lay us in laying us bare, to, to ripping us open and showing what really is inside of us. The goal isn't to beat us down. The goal is to wake us up to have us open up that door that he is standing at and knocking. Now, I don't know this morning if one of these letters hits you more than one of the others. I don't know if you stand for everything that's right, but you're loveless in your heart. When it comes to grace and truth, you've got the truth part right, but you've lost sight of faith. Or maybe... You've been enduring things, a lot of things, but you're starting to weaken. Maybe you say that you're devoted, but you're compromising when it comes to your lifestyle. You like to serve others, you love others, you care for others, but in embracing grace, you've forgotten about truth. You've gone from accepting people to affirming lifestyle choices in people, maybe even in yourself, that you have no business in affirming. Maybe your letter was that you're like the walking dead. There's been a slow move away from anything that would keep you spiritually alive. Your relationship was once vibrant and growing, but now it's like a cut flower that was once planted in the soil, one that will seem okay for a little bit, but then will die a slow but certain death. Maybe you've been sitting there, surrounded by good things that dull your senses into thinking that you have everything that you need, but it's made you indifferent to the things of God. See, in truth, you have nothing of significance and your lukewarm nature is making God wretch. Now, I don't know which of those letters hit you today, which of those letters was meant just for you today. All I know is that if it was meant for you, if it hit you, if it stepped on your toes this morning, if you have ears to hear, I pray that you will listen that you will open up your heart and you will turn back to Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the message that you gave to these churches. Thank you that it also applies to us. Help us to hear these messages, whichever one is for us personally, to hear it, 
to open our heart and to turn to you. No matter what we're doing wrong, we're all doing something wrong. No matter what it is, help us to surrender to you. And in that surrender, help us to then reach others. Because that is our call. You're standing at the door knocking. Help us to open that door. In Jesus' name, amen.